from the Wormy studios of Rodale Institute Radio and Television at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. It's time for another poopy episode of chemical-free horticultural hijinks. You bet your garden. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. Are you one of many who wisely recycle your kitchen waste through a worm bin? On today's show, we'll suggest the best ways to deal with your harvests of finished worm castings when the weather outside is frightful. Otherwise, it's a fabulous phone call show, Cats and Kittens. Yes, potential guests are busy reassuring their worms. So we will take that heap and help it. Of your telecommunicated questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and ideologically intuitive interpretations. So keep your eyes and or ears right here, cats and kittens, because it's all coming up faster than you taking tea at three. Right after this. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society. Plants and gardens can have an enormous impact on our everyday lives. At PHS, they believe that a seed can be more than a plant and that gardening can be more than a hobby. PHS is working to plant with purpose and help build healthier communities. Learn more about involvement at phs.org impact. Welcome to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio and Television at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath, and coming up later in the show, we will discuss what to do with all the food your worms and your worm bin produce by eating your kitchen garbage when it's freezing cold outside. Before that, we'll take lots of your freezing cold phone calls at 833-727-9588. Wendy, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, Mike. I'm very glad to talk to you. I'm very glad to talk to you, Wendy. Where are you? I'm in Louisville, Colorado, near Boulder. Oh, okay. So we've lived in Colorado a decade now, and I've seen numerous shops around that sell hydroponics and grow lights mm -hmm. and things that are way uh, higher end than the little LED uh, units I mm -hmm. use to start seeds. Mm -hmm. um, and so pe people are growing full-size cannabis plants. Um, even now that it's legal, they're still doing it in their basements because it has to be done under lock and key. So if all of my neighbors are growing these large plants, um, cannabis plants in their basements. Can I grow a tomato as a house plant in any fashion? Because that's the produce I'm willing to invest my time and money into. Uh, the thing about being here in Colorado, where, where I am in, in the Boulder area, we have a very short growing season mm -hmm. and um, not just a short growing season, but half of that season is a very dry, mm -hmm. intense sun period that tomatoes just don't like. I can't even grow large ones because of uh, the zone we're in. So I couldn't put my tomato plants out this year until mid-June because we had such a cold right. cold spring. So and I people... see these things for sale on Craigslist and yeah. tents and $200 lights. And uh -huh. I just, I've wondered for years and I finally thought to ask um what could I do to grow okay. my preferred plants indoors? Okay. So um, one thing, I'm not sure it is legal, even in Colorado, which is otherwise a wide open mm -hmm. state. I'm not sure it's legal yeah. for humans to grow their own plants. That's still a violation 
of federal law. That's the same law, unfortunately. They've not changed it. The important thing to remember here is mm -hmm. they're growing a very high-value crop. You are not going to get okay. $300 an ounce for your tomatoes, right? Right. Right. So it would be very counterintuitive. Now, over the years, I've experimented with various things. I have found the easiest big plants, real vegetable plants to grow indoors are pepper plants. Um, be okay. Because they tend to be more compact. They tend to be more upright. They don't need the support of tomatoes. Um, mm -hmm. And you can perennialize them. You can put them outside on days where it's... Um, nice and sunny and warm, and then you can bring them inside. And really, all you need for production is to have them very close to the tubes of a four-foot-long shop light that has okay. four tubes in it. So this is one like okay. you'd see in a regular ceiling. It's not the little two-foot yeah. one over a guy's, uh, little two-tube one over a guy's hobby bench. It's four tubes, right. each four feet long, and no, no special tubes, just fluorescent lights, and keep the tops of the plants almost touching. They'll flower and fruit for you indoors. And I always, okay. I always recommend that you grow these in containers that have a mixture of potting soil and compost. Um, when okay. people would ask me about hydroponics, I would say there's nothing about hydroponics that a little, uh, little dirt wouldn't cure. It's, <laughs> it's totally unnatural. It relies on chemicals. It's very um, electric-intensive, power-intensive, as are those professional yeah. grow lights. I mean, we're talking now, you know, uh, a regular shop light might be 12, 20 watts of power. Um, these giant mm -hmm. suckers, they're 400, 1,000 watts. You, you know, hard to get any kind of return on investment in that with a brandy one. And tomatoes, okay. and, and tomatoes are a little bulky at growing indoors. Now, you eat indoor-grown tomatoes from Holland. They have acres and acres of glass houses that concentrate the sun, mm -hmm. and then they have additional lights, but they have it on a scale that it can make sense. For right. you, what I'm going to suggest, if you want indoor produce all year long, you can, uh, you can mm -hmm. certainly grow your herbs under the kind of... Um, Output I'm, I'm thinking of, the, the big yeah. four-tube fluorescent shop light. You can grow peppers, mm -hmm. although I would urge you to lean towards the smaller peppers. Not California Wonder. It just takes too long to, um, to color up. But there's little things called yeah. jingle bells and baby bells that are delicious, and they keep fruiting like mad. Of course, the, uh, oh, okay. the various hot peppers for your tomatoes. If you are willing mm -hmm. to set up yet a different system, you know, the same system, but on a different bench, different table, mm -hmm. I would start my tomatoes, let's see, normally to go outside on May 15th, I start mine in early March. Why don't you drop mm -hmm. back to February and start them? Okay. And again, realize these plants are going to grow big. They're still going to take up a lot of room inside. Mm -hmm. uh, can t follow the tomato growing instructions at our website. Go to youbetyourgarden.org. On the right-hand side, about halfway down, there's a box that says 500 answers to your garden questions. And read mm -hmm. things about tomato starting. The only thing you have to add is you're going to have to start feeding them a bit more and transplanting them up into bigger pots. 
But then when okay. when winter finally does end, take them outside. You don't even have to plant them. You can actually mm -hmm. bury the pots in the ground because these are going to be big plastic pots. So you can just okay. dig a hole, plant them in the ground, and that way you're not going to disturb the roots. The older the plant, the more difficult it gets to transplant. But what you're mm. going to do is plant them in the pot so the roots aren't disturbed, and then that plastic is also going to keep the moisture in the plants. Oh, okay. And I would, yeah, ur yeah. I would urge you them. to look at the cleanest household water you have high. In other words, get gravity mm -hmm. to work for you. Bathtubs, showers, all tend to be on the second floor. Um, any sinks that are on the second floor, you run it all into one single pipe, and then that pipe comes out to a drip irrigation system. And again, as soon as, uh, as soon as the water hits that pipe, it'll go right into the plants. And that way you'll extend your season. And you may not be able to grow 100-day tomatoes, but I bet you can grow 85-day mm -hmm. tomatoes with that. Because you, yeah, yeah. you want the bigger tomatoes for the bigger leaf structure. One of the issues you face at high elevation, your UV light is much more intense. It can be up to 25% more intense um, than the mm -hmm. UV light that hits my plants at ground level, uh, sea level, and that can scar them. You know, you want to keep the fruits covered. If you find that that's still going on, invest in some shade cloth. Very inexpensive. Mm -hmm. You put it over hoops. You can take it off on a cloudy day. Just roll it down the sides, roll it back up. Matter of fact, you can leave it on in the morning and cover it on those really intense afternoons. But there's ways to do this without spending tens of thousands of dollars. Okay. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I've tried in the past to have an umbrella situated to where it covers it by 3 o'clock in the afternoon. But, well, a windstorm took care of that umbrella and it hasn't been replaced. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I do, remember, I do remember it can get windy there. But when you're dealing with a hoop mm -hmm. house, you can really fix that in the ground much more strongly. And uh, the, okay. hoop, the hoop house or the hooping that holds the shade cloth, both will last for years and years. They're an easy investment. Okay. Just make sure because mm -hmm. of where you are, you get shade cloth that is the maximum UV resistant so the sun doesn't cook it. Okay. All right? Okay. Thank you so much. This has been an education. I appreciate well, your time. Thank the good people at uh, Cortez uh, who brought me uh, up there to give a couple of talks because I learned more about Colorado during that week we spent there than um, I ever could read in books. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. I uh, wish I could have made it. That's uh, I'm on the other side of the Rockies from, from that area, so it's quite well, a trek to the uh, other side of the state from here. Well, tell your public radio station awesome. to invite me out. Oh, that's a great idea. I will certainly do that. Thank you so much. All right. Good luck, Wendy. Two little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs. Two little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs. Two little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs. Little 
bug, little bug, little bug, little bug, little bug, little bug. One little bug, little bug, little bug, little bug, little bug, little bug. One little bug, little bug, little bug, little bug, little bug, little bug. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and announce that many of us are running out of time to properly plant spring bulbs like tulips, daffodils, and crocuses in our beds. But don't go putting your bulbs to bed just yet, because we'll be right back with the best ways to use worm castings in the winter and more of your wormy phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, a question coming from Europe about a very common topic. What's the best way to handle your worm tea and your worm castings from your worm bin in the winter? And we'll tell you what we think about that. But now it's time to welcome our special guest, Sue Gotts, that's G-O-E-T-Z, who is the author of a new book that I think will interest many of you as it is a prime topic in our phone calls and emails. It's called Complete Container Herb Gardening, and it'll be out December 8th from Cool Springs Press. Sue, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thank you, thanks for inviting me. Well, thanks for being invited, or thanks for covering a topic <laughs> that um, really is important to our listeners. Um, people talk about herbs all the time. And although it's not the primary focus of your book, you do cover indoor herb gardening fairly completely. And as you probably know, during this pandemic, people are desperate to do anything that brings life into their house. So I think even people who have a gardening room outside um, want to hear more about indoor herb gardening. And for instance, for somebody like me who suffers from a real winter, it's it's either indoor or, yeah. you know, chew on paperboard. <laughs> right? Yeah, I I think we're, we're there. We want to bring, like you said, bring life in our surroundings, wherever that may be, as you're kind of locked into your office or whatever. So I'm super excited to share more about this book and really because um, the indoor part of it is the accessibility and we want to bring plants that, that give back to us, uh, give us something to nurture us a little bit. And herbs are that perfect plant to do that because they give back in so many ways. Now, one thing that struck me as I went through the book 
is you are head over heels in love with terracotta pots. I mean, it, you know, the first part of the book is a love letter uh, to terracotta, which I have to admit um, really looks nice. They're the nicest looking uh, containers. Uh, I always warn people that they dry out very quickly in the winter because they wick their moisture into the air and the air is dry. Um, but you see this and every other aspect of terracotta, let's be honest, as a plus. I, I do. You know, I think there's something about terracotta that is really actually embedded in history. I mean, that's just the classic pot that before we had black nursery pots, we had, you know, the, the industry used terracotta. And I think the other aspect of it is is they're, they're beautiful. Uh, they're very useful and purposeful, but also... You know, they're, they're not cheap, most of them, but they're relatively inexpensive. Um, I, I never thought of it quite as a love letter to terracotta, <laughs> so <laughs> thanks for giving me that. <laughs> that. That's actually kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, and, and you talk about how, unlike me, they improve with age. And one of the most, <laughs> one of the most interesting parts of the book, you talk about um, distressing the pots, for lack of a better word, and giving them even more character by doing really interesting things like uh, using moss on the outside to kind of make patterns, right? Yeah, absolutely. Just, uh, you know, a little bit of nature, you kind of give nature a, a, a little bit of a kickstart on the terracotta. You rub uh, buttermilk or yogurt or something, put the moss in that, and it will start to kind of cling and invade around the terracotta clay because it's so porous. And so then you could add your own little kind of effect to them. So um, I recently had a client who said her terracotta put, pot looked so new. What would I what would she do with it? So of course I had to, sh had to share what I, you know, besides throwing it in the mud and rolling it around, I gave her the tips that actually were from the book. And and uh, I just really think it kind of brings a, a sense of, of just age and fun in the garden and, and makes you feel like you've been gardening for a while because they look nice and aged. You know, herbs just do so well in that porous clay. I mean, we have to go to the mechanical aspect beyond the beauty. They, it's well draining. The roots don't get all soppy and wet. Most of these Mediterranean kind of herbs appreciate that good drainage, that drying out that can happen in a pot. Right. Well, you've been in this business long enough to know that overwatering and watering too much or watering in the wrong kind of container is the single biggest human cause of plant death. Right. The, the funny things I, I think people do is they get in a routine, like I water every Monday or what, I throw water on my pot every time I drink a cup of coffee or whatever. And and plants just kind of have their own routine, and you have to be a little more tuned into that instead of forcing yourself on what they may or may not need. And one thing I can't stress enough is people, as you say, they want to be helpful. They want to take good care of their babies. So they're feeding them 18 meals a day and waking them up at 3 a.m. <laughs> Come on, I just made a big pot of spaghetti. You know, right. let's, let's have a party. Right. And right. <laughs> it is so much easier to revive a dry plant than it is to bring a drowned plant back from the dead. Right. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at a drowned plant, I always say, 
do a little uh, investigating down below the soil level and you'll see those roots are just all but black and rotted when it's a problem with water. Whereas a dry one, they're just, they're just really kind of crying for moisture. And again, especially as you say, yeah. when we're growing Mediterranean plants, which always appreciate mm -hmm. having uh, dry feet. Like I said, a lot of your book is about outdoor gardening in, um, in containers. And you go through not just terracotta pots, but you know, all sorts of recycled and interesting and artistic containers, uh, something I've gotten into more and more over the years. Um, hey, what are you gonna throw that out for? I can use that for a planter. Yeah, It's a planter, <laughs> whether yeah. you thought so or not. <laughs> the book is filled with photos all of which you took, you took the pictures, all except for one container or picture in the book. You took them all and the, the photography is magnificent. Well, thank you for that. I, I did, there's, there's, about, there's about 10 I didn't take. Um, I had a wonderful photographer that I worked with, um, but most of them we, I did take and they are all around my garden and a few other places uh, that I visited and things like that. But it's just really, every time I go somewhere and I see an herb in a container, it's inspiring. It makes me think, all right, who thought of that? And are they wanting to harvest it for flavor? What are they doing with it? So, so thank you for the compliment on the photography. So there's so much in your book that we could cover, but based on my emails and phone calls, I wanna lead you inside. Tell us what you have found to be the easiest herbs to grow indoors. And let's make it a little harder on you or maybe easier by saying, this is somebody in an apartment, they don't have any space outside, um, they're gonna be growing indoors 12 months of the year, so let's bring you indoors because there are a lot of people who don't have gardens outside and wanna grow plants indoors. And why would you not wanna grow a plant that you can also eat? And there are people like me who have a lot of outdoor growing space who do a lot of indoor gardening anyway, because as we said, it's great to have these living things um, right in your kitchen or, or wherever. So tell us what you have found to be the easiest and most rewarding herbs to grow indoors. So uh, it's a handful. I mean, not everyone, not every herb will be happy inside. One thing I, I usually tell people is think about what they need when they're outside. If they need a lot of sun, a lot of light, um, can you mimic those conditions in your house? And, and that's really the best starting point is, is can you give them the conditions they're asking for? And I think some of the easiest, uh, most forgiving when you can't maybe get oh, full hot light like they're outside or uh, chives, which I use all the time. I'm always snipping those. I put them in whatever savory dish I'm kind of working on. It's chives. Parsley is an easy one. And again, it's that green kind of flavor that you can throw into everything. Rosemary is not too bad. You have to give it a little bit of light. And so what I actually do in my indoor garden, because I, I feel ashamed if I didn't have plants inside, because I like walking in and out of that greenery. So Inside, I actually have a, a floor lamp that's a decorative floor lamp. So it looks like it belongs there. Um, it's, it's a part of my dining room, actually. And I have a plant light bulb in it, the one that gives us those spectrums of light that plants appreciate. 
And that's where my herbs do really well because I can't give them enough light in a window. So you might have to get a little creative inside. Um, back to the herbs, I, I like to also always have a pot of basil going. I'm usually mm -hmm. starting seed and letting it get up because you just, you know, in the middle of winter when you can't get out in your garden, basil is just that real fresh, wonderful uh, flavor that you can't really dry or, you know, or, or, or preserve very easily. And so uh, basil seems to be a must and it's so easy. And uh, one thing I want to say before I forget about it, you named my favorite indoor herb, which is rosemary. Um, people get confused about rosemary's requirements, thinking they have to bring it inside in September and wait till late May to take it out, when really it's just maybe 20 cold, wet, freezing days that might kill the plant outside in most USDA zones. And if, if you're not going through a freezing cycle and there's not gonna be an ice storm, it's happier being outside so that when you bring it in for a week or two, um, it, does, it really doesn't care. It's gotten a lot of sun, it's gotten a lot of fresh air, it's been talking with all the other plants. And then it's, <laughs> it, it's really happy to come inside. So, you know, if you don't mind the um, moving in and out, I, I think it's a sensational indoor plant. Yeah. Absolutely. And you're right. It, it, it really does a little better outside. So even if you're that apartment dweller or, or, or a condo dweller, if you have a, a little porch or a patio that you can keep it tucked out onto the balcony or, or something like that and then bring it in when it gets a bit nippy. And, you know, we're talking about when it's dropping, you know, 29 degrees or, or you know, really below freezing because it'll take a nip of frost. It's not really that bad, but, you know, long, steady, cold, 29 degrees for weeks on end is a little different. So you'd have to just tuck it back into the house and then take it back out on the patio on a warm, sunny day. Uh, you know, it's really, uh, it, it really takes that very well, as long as you are giving it really good light. That's one thing I find gets a little leggy and stretched out if it doesn't have enough light. And then it looks a little funny. So we want to keep it healthy and vigorous so we can pick a lot of it to eat, right? <laughs> right, exactly. And I would even suggest... Um, say a quote window box and when i say quote i mean with kind of just the the frame where you could move these container plants outside into natural conditions when you get a winter thaw or something like that um and then you know just you know create something or buy something that you can put like three 12 inch pots in outside and then it's your game to lose. You know, you can move them in and out. And again, we come back around to why containers. Rosemary is unusual in that I think it will survive winter better outdoors in a container than it will in the ground because the ground gets saturated without the warm days to dry it out. That's a great point. Um, rosemary in a container left outside, draining well, and, and like you said, not in that soppy, saturated ground, uh, depending on where you, you live, that, that is its home. And you know, rosemary is my number one. I have a hedge of it along the front of my garden, and that's you know always active every day of the year with hummingbirds. And so if you have the opportunity in your own space to keep it outside, then definitely a beautiful container that you can walk by and brush your hand on it, snip some when you're cooking, 
being, it's, it's just that plant that I think everybody should have. Um, my, <laughs> my dear departed friend, Dr. Jim Duke, who is, was probably the most knowledgeable human on the planet about the medicinal properties of plants, uh, had this great line. He said, sage will not make you sage, but rosemary will because it is the herb that provides the most mental stimulus and alertness. It's just, it, it's, you know, and I'm coming up with this stupid word. Maybe I'll have to write the book now. It seems to me like it's a power herb. Yeah. I'm sorry that I seem to be taking over this interview, but I love the concept so much that I also want to mention that I bring lemon balm indoors uh, for the winter time. Another good friend of mine, um, Andy Weil, the natural physician, you know, Harvard trained, but you know, tries to avoid pharmaceuticals, said that he finds lemon balm to be a better antidepressant than um, St. John's wort. And when he's feeling a little blue, especially in the winter, because he gets a little SAD, you know, seasonal affective disorder. Um, he just takes this big bush of lemon balm and rubs his head in it and instantly feels better. Right. You know, and I, I and there is some good studies behind that lemon balm has some really good antidepressive qualities. Uh, smelling, so the aromatherapy part of it, drinking the tea, all of that. And um, I'll, I'll give a nod to you for keeping lemon balm inside. I don't bring it in because, first of all, it's just, it stays beautiful uh, 12 months of the year here. So I don't need to I can go out in my garden and just harvest, harvest, harvest. Um, but I, I find like I, it doesn't seem to do well inside for me. So I'm going to give you a, that one. That's awesome. <laughs> and, and, and more power, right? Well, I want to actually do this and not just talk about it. So I have um, a porch that, unlike most porches, is totally sealed, well insulated, and it even has a little heater in it. And I have a, a four-tube shop light, uh, four four-foot-long tubes of the greatest lumens I can find. And under that shop light are um, the peppers, hot and sweet, that I've brought in. Um, you know, to survive the winter and go back out again, lemon balm, rosemary, and begonias. Begonias will outlive you if you bring them inside. Now, they're not an herb. I'm drifting off topic, but um, <laughs> what else is new, right? <laughs> no, I, that, I, that's a really great mix of plants that you've got going on there. It's, it's, it's definitely diverse. We'll, we'll say that, which is not a bad thing. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, there is so much in your book that we could continue to talk about. Um, but I just want to tell everybody out there that I really recommend it. I really like the mix of photos. That's something people want to see. They want to see what it's going to look like, give them ideas. And you really give them free reign when it comes to containers. You're really empowering them. So um, yeah. we recommend it. Uh, complete container herb gardening because you tried the incomplete and nobody bought that one, right? <laughs> so the book is Complete Container Herb Gardening by Sue Getz, which is G-O-E-T-Z, out December 8th from Cool Spring Press. Uh, Sue, thanks very much for joining us today on You Bet Your Garden.
Thank you so much for inviting me and um, the wonderful recommendation in my book that, that I'm honored. So thank you so much for that. All right. Thank you. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and warn everyone getting ready to plant tulip bulbs that they are the favorite food of mice, voles, and evil squirrels. So protect them by putting sharp stones in each planting hole and or disguise their scent by spraying a castor oil-based mole and vole repellent on top and or by mulching the bed with dog hair. But don't go protecting your tulips just yet because we'll be right back with answers to your worm compost questions and more of your fabulous phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath, and we're in the stretch now, cats and kittens. In just a little bit, we'll give you some great ideas about how to use the plant food your worms produce if you got a bin. In the meantime, in between time, we're still going to have fun with your fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. Barbara, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Well, hello. Hello, Barbara. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. And where is Barbara doing well? Uh, in Boone, North Carolina. I know where that is. My good friend Pat Stone, who edits Green Prince magazine, lives in Boone. I look forward to meeting them. Yes, he calls his little magazine the Weeders Digest. <laughs> That's pretty funny. All right, so what can we do? You, you live in a little bit of heaven. You're right near the uh, rhododendron forests and um, mm -hmm. just beautiful raging white waters in the spring. You're in a beautiful natural area. Well, I believe so. It's a little hot and crunchy here this year. <laughs> hot and but, crunchy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's how you want your French fries, right? Yeah. Well, exactly, exactly. Uh, well, what I have going on, the question I have for you today is I have or had three apple trees. Um, and about, they're about 40 years old. Mm. And I noticed last year they were looking sort of weary. And I just attributed that to age. This year, I, I swear to goodness, they, they died overnight. And um, I'm noticing a horizontal line of holes, very well regimented holes, up and all up and down from the trunk to the the highest branch that I can see. And right. I'm wondering what that is. You never saw the bird. That's a, no, is it a bird. Yellow-bellied sapsucker, um, which is both a fabulous name for a bird but the name for a woodpecker, medium to large size, they're not tiny, and uh, they do suck sap, and they do have yellow bellies, and they're notorious for ringing a tree, so to speak. They will make a straight line of these little holes uh, all, all around the center of a tree. 
and, huh. and they'll go up and down as well. But the distinctive characteristic is there's a ring of holes. And that, huh. that yes. appears to be what you have, right? Yes, that's what I'm looking at, right. Be- um, because I have not really noticed the birds, but... Well, you should, because they are day-flying woodpeckers, after all, and they are mm. um, pretty amazing-looking creatures. Are your, are your apples in plain sight, or do you have to walk to get to them? Oh, they're in plain sight. I'm looking at them mm. right now. That's unusual. Oh, what, what's left? I don't know of any borers, so to speak, insects that bore into the bark of apple trees. Apples are prone to a lot of other issues, a lot of diseases, a lot of pests that affect the fruit. But I'm not aware of any boring insects. Um, I am very well aware of the, of the symptoms of the yellow-bellied sapsucker, and but I'm 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 not used to hearing them being fatal. Although if there's enough holes in the trees, that'll kill it. So are you saying the trees did not um, green up this uh, spring? They did. Uh, that was what's unusual they did and mm-hmm. leafing and then um again just i could i could just watch this within maybe a month or two everything just died uh now I, you say they they did leaf out what did they flower um i i i some not a whole lot of flowering usually i can i i, I can see the flowers but not much flowering that's a bad all. sign and i do that's a bad sign. I'd, I'd like you to double check my diagnosis with your local county uh, extension agent. Just take a picture of the rings. Um, from what you're describing, uh, I'm pretty sure it's that bird. And perhaps the trees were just getting older and stressed. <sighs> There's really nothing you can do. It doesn't help to fill in the holes. The tree can do that better on its own. Your only hope against future damage would be to erect some kind of fencing around the tree that would be about a foot out um, Hmm. so that the bird couldn't just reach in through the fencing. And you'd have to do something at the top, too. So, And all three trees were attacked, right? Yes. Matter of fact, and my neighbors and the neighbor up the street and the neighbor across the road. So... Uh, whatever's happening is is not just specific to my hmm. backyard. And you didn't see any birds. I want you to check with I your. Didn't. I want you to check with your local extension service. There could be a pest out there that I'm not familiar with. Um, but uh, what do you propose doing now? Oh, they have to come down. Okay. Uh, they they are that dead, and if I don't take them down, they'll be a hazard. Yeah. How tall are they? Uh, well, you would ask me that. I'd say 40, 40-something 40 feet. I'm yeah. Not, I'm and so there was, they, there was really no way to care for them because you couldn't get to the tops anymore. No, no, okay. no, no. Okay, so um, uh, do you have a way to take them down? Or are you uh, Chainsaw Massacre Molly here? you ready to go out and do uh, it? <laughs> I gave that up. Yes, I have an arborist who can take them down. Okay, good. Let me explain to you that after applewood dries, it is highly sought after. Um, do you have any um, chefs in town who specialize in, like, wood-burning pizza or, or wood-burning grilling or anything like that? I believe there are some, and I'll find some. Yes. For sure. Because uh, after because the- I, I am going to have a lot. 
after that wood is seasoned, it is sought after for wood grilling. It imparts a delicious apple-like scent to the grilled food. Smokers, too, uh, people mm -hmm. who smoke meats and fruits and things like that, they're always looking for seasoned apple wood. So uh, maybe you can get something back on that. Are you, do you intend to replant? Uh, not, uh, right now I'm just thinking about getting them down, so I'm not, uh, I haven't uh, jumped that far. The other question I had, do these, say if they are the sap suckers, do they attack other trees as well? I mean, since I'm not quite sure what is the culprit here, yeah. but um, th could I be seeing some of the same damage on oaks, tulip poplars, maples? Well, they would attack trees that, uh, maples, yes, because they are very sappy. That's how we get maple syrup. And, of course, mm -hmm. the apple tree because the sap is very flavorful. Um, mm. That's something easy enough for you to look up, but they are not specific to apple trees. No, I see them, I saw them on my peach trees, which, of course, would also have very um, sweet sap. But um, talk to your local county extension agent, and if there's a pest roaming your area that I don't know about, please call us back, and um, we'll see what we can do about it. I certainly will. Thank you so much. I appreciate talking to you. All right. My uh, I appreciate it, too. All right. Thanks, Bob. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Well, they saw it first in Southeast PA, and it's spreading further every day. It's doing our crops and trees a lot of harm. It's an insect species that's not native, reproducing at a very high rate of speed, and folks, that's cause for some alarm. Now, once you dig what I have dug, you'll be hit to this invasive bug, and friend, you'll want to help to stop it spread. And when you see that little critter gonna take a swing like a home run hitter and smash that spotted lantern, fly dead. Die, 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 spotted lantern, fly. When you see me coming, you'll know your end is nigh. I got a fly swatter, I'm gonna chase her all the way back to Asia. Die, 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 spotted lantern fly. In the fall, find the eggs on a wall tree trunk and scrape them off into an alcohol dunk, and surely that will cause them to expire. When the nymphs hatch from the eggs in spring, wrap your trees with a sticky tape ring, but save the birds by covering with chicken wire. Tree of Heaven is our preferred host, yeah, that's the tree it likes the most. So if you got one in your yard, shove it down. Don't transport firewood, brush, or debris, because they'll hide in there and you'll never see them. Hitch a ride with you to the very next town. Die, 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 spotted lanternfly. When you see me coming, you'll know your end is nigh. I got a flash water, I'm going to chase you all the way back to Asia. Die, 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 spotted lanternfly. All right, as promised, it's time for the question of the week, which we're calling Handling Worm Poop Over the Winter. Christopher in Freiburg, Switzerland writes, I have a question I've been wanting to ask you for some time. I have two worm bins and never know what to do with the compost that they produce during the fall and winter. No matter where I seem to store it, on the balcony or in the basement, it begins to develop a nasty smell rather quickly. Should I just find a place in the garden where I can pile it up during the cold season? Will it leach nutrients if stored in this manner? Is it safe to use smelly compost? The same questions apply for the compost tea that is produced. 
This is a situation I know well, as my stackable worm bin has proven to be hugely productive over the years it's been sitting out on our insulated enclosed porch. And while things do seem to slow down a bit in winter, you still have to harvest the finished material to make room for fresh garbage and to make sure your worms have enough new food to eat. But before answering, I wanted to learn more about Christopher's part of Switzerland, which is in the western portion, and especially its weather. But on the way, I saw a short article about a wonderful, quote, tourist attraction that strongly implies that this is a very sustainable city. Titled Ride the Fununcular, it describes a, quote, cable railway that links the upper part of the city to the lower part. It's been running since 1899 and is powered solely by the town's wastewater. The two cars counterbalance one another through their ascent and descent, and as they make the journey along the steep slope, offer a clear view of Old Town. Runs every six minutes based on demand. So hold my room, Chris. I'm on my way. I would specify in the spring, but winters are milder in Freiburg than you might think. The normal winter lows are 27 degrees Fahrenheit, and it rarely drops below 18, which is about the same or maybe even slightly warmer in the Mont Lehigh Valley here in PA. Anyway, here are the options for winter worm ranchers everywhere. No matter what, try and wait for a warm spell. Fahrenheit's in the 40s or above to try and keep any worms that are still rooting around in that finished material happy for a while. Okay, number one choice. Incorporate the finished worm castings into one or more compost bins. This is my choice of choices for the truly cold months of January and February and works especially well if you have professionally made bins with locking lids. Not so much to keep any vermin out, but to keep the contents warm enough for any live worms to get into the center where it should be warm enough to keep them actively working. No matter what, have some extra shredded leaves on hand and use them to cover the worm castings. Number one, A. Same thing goes for worm tea. Perhaps even more so if you have bins that are not open to the weather because the contents can get a little dry. And what better way to provide moisture than the nutrient-rich liquid from a worm bin? And I would do the same with piles that are open to the elements, especially if you can then cover the pile with some shredded leaves. If you want to go all out, keep a bag of shredded leaves inside and use those. Their warm ambient temperature will get any hitchhiking worms off to an active start. Option number two, houseplants. First, let's make this clear. Most houseplants should not be fed over the winter because they are dormant, and so the food is wasted at best. But some houseplants, like Meyer lemons and other citrus that goes outdoors in the summer and back in for the winter, are actively growing in the off-season, and they would love a natural feeding. I would recommend an inch or two of castings on the surface of the soil, or watering them with worm tea diluted about 50-50 with clean water. 2A, springtime starts. For many years, okay, decades, I didn't really feed the baby tomato and pepper plants I was starting from seed and all went well. Then I decided to switch it up and give them some liquid gentle feedings along the way and all went better. 
except for the terrible tomato tragedy of 2018, which did not involve feeding and of which we will not speak again. So if you start your own seeds, water them with diluted worm tea weekly, beginning about four weeks from the time they appear above the soil. Option number three, just toss worm liquid and solid onto your garden beds and hope for the best. Cover with shredded leaves if you can. Option number four, experiment with refrigeration. Scoop your finished material into quart-sized lidded containers, like the ones used for takeout hot and sour soup, and put them in the warmest part of the fridge. Be sure to label them. This should at least buy you time to get to the next non-freezing stretch of weather. And finally, do not use castings or tea directly on plants if it's even a little bit stinky. But you can and should mix any stinky stuff into your outdoor compost bins. Well, that sure was some good information about using your wormy excrement wisely now, wasn't it? Luckily for you, you can read that over at your leisure or your leisure, because the question of the week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. Just click the link for the question of the week at our website, which is still and will forever be, say it with me, kids, youbetyourgarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden question of the week, and you will always find the latest question of the week at the Gardens Alive website. Yikes, my producer is threatening to corrupt my castings if I don't get out of the studio. We must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 833-727-9588 or send us your email. You're tired, you're poor, you're wretched refuse teeming towards our garden shore at ybyg at wlvt.org, as long as you include your location. You'll find all of this contact information, answers to your garden questions, audio of this show, video of this show, audio and video of old shows and links to our internationally renowned podcast. It's all at YouBetYourGarden.org. You Bet Your Garden is a half-hour public television show, an hour-long public radio show and podcast, all produced and delivered to you weekly by Rodale Institute Radio in association with Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Our radio show is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. You Bet Your Garden was created by Mike McGrath. Mike McGrath was created when Sir Guy de Guy and Fussy and Gussie attempted to abscond with a certain bunyip's bow tie. Ken Queter plays our theme song. Our chief content officer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our angel of the airways is Christine Dempsey. Our engineer is cheerful Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda Norfleet. Check out her fine work at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Our peerless princess of profound production is Tavia Minnick. Our audio editor is the always lovely Jonas Bowen. And our video editor is judicious Jake Boyer. Our harassed and harried director of direction is Javier Diaz. Our usual gang of idiots includes Jazzy Jeff Frederick, the esteemed Eric Warner, Zach Detack Wisniewski, and gentleman John Flynn. Many others too expensive to mention. Our beloved CEO, Tim Fallon, is one with the worms. Oh, oh, wait a minute, that didn't come out right. Oh well, perhaps because there's nobody else in the building, I am still your host, Mike McGrath. And as sure as there are invasive eels in Central Park, I'll see you again next week. <laughs>